awesome. So thank you for being here. The title for this session is Aubrey Marcus and Matthias De Stefano. It's the first time we've made the title of a session and an invitation someone's name, in this case two people's names, and I suppose all of us here know what we're speaking about, although some listeners might not. Well, I'd encourage you to maybe look into the show notes, perhaps you'll pick up a little bit of what follows from this, but there's a lot of rich, authentic exchange, which will really serve you well in jumping into this exploration with us. Because that is what we're going to be doing today. We're going to be seeking to understand some of the core patterns, the questions we might have, particularly some of the energies, bringing to presence some of the energies associated with what transpires when someone like Aubrey has a conversation in front of so many millions with someone like Matthias De Stefano. Of course, there are a number of others as well. Very unique characters, both of them, with respect to how they show up and influence the attentional landscape. I think that's fair to say. I've been familiar with Aubrey's work, his podcast, his company for, who knows, I suppose a decade, maybe a little bit more. I've spoken to what I understand to be a good friend of his, Eric Godsey, who has worked for Onnit, works for Aubrey. I'm not sure of the current working relationship, but Eric's been on the podcast a couple of times several years ago. And I know a number of us have an interest in Aubrey's podcast. We listen to it from time to time. And there's a number of shared themes in common. You'll also find people like John Viveki, Guy Sengstock, even Alexander Bard, all of them have been on Aubrey's podcast. And there have been quite a few other crossovers as well in terms of same guests. And so there seems to be some place of contact, of mutual interest. And how could there not be in some sense when so many of the themes, meaning in life, living well, seeking truth, understanding one's place in the context of the cosmos, in the context of community, with a broad brush, these are all themes that you'll find many people care about. These are themes and questions of life, of adventure. Of course, you also have in the world of Aubrey Marcus and here as well is another shared interest for many of us, exploration of altered states of consciousness, spirituality, of peak experience, of relating with trauma, of healing in that sense, essentially seeking to understand what it means to live the good life, what it means to be in relation to the true good and beautiful. So many deep philosophical themes are held in common and I certainly want to share the invitation to participate in this and it's very much held in the context of respect for the integrity I at least perceive from afar that Aubrey in particular has engaged in that process and sought to build a life and create value for himself and others based in an authenticity 
and integrity of that search and that effort. In so doing, along with a number of other things, if Orbi Marcus has a podcast with an interesting guest, it will be listened to by millions of people. And therefore, many of the themes which are so important to so many, which are discussed on there and shared to the degree there's resonance that's shared, it has an interesting effect. And so from that perspective, I think it's worthy to speak about but particularly so in a number of ways, which I won't speak to myself now. This is, after all, an invitation to dialogue. I'm setting out a bit of the frame here for reasons of, again, respect and, and integrity. On Matthias, this is a very interesting character, a super interesting character, not someone I know in, in any way other than by listening to him on various podcasts. He will describe himself as variously a human portal, as someone who can remember multiple past lives, lives including those lived by a member of a civilization who, if not born in Atlantean times, was approximately very close I think he refers to it as a place of chem something like that I've heard him also mention that he has lived a life as a something to the effect of a minor bureaucratic figure in an intergalactic council which is a radical claim and there's many many more clearly to speak from this perspective is to take on a certain authority with respect to the nature of reality. You can plug in many more, let's call them claims, but they're a little bit more than that. In a sense, claim would be a little bit too shallow. They are claims, but they're also expressed through story and... I think what's fair to say a certain experiential knowing, a reality of experience, which I'm very much also inviting that we speak to with integrity and with a certain openness. In and amongst all of this, there's obviously many metaphysical claims that are being made as to the nature of reality in terms of number of dimensions. And in and amongst all of that, various teachings or transmissions for what it means to be a human being, what it means importantly to relate to death, and what it means to create and realize meaning in life, how some civilizations have fallen, and importantly the thing I'd like to sort of invite our attention to is what all of this means when we consider the prescriptions for action which are either explicitly or implicitly implied in these podcasts, in these stories, in the invitations to go on courses, retreats around the world, open portals here and there, spend what for some people is a lot of money, 
on investing their energy and time, their hopefulness in what turn out to be very much embodied practical investments, behavioral investments in the world. There's a real sense in which I think we you know, owe to our own pursuit of understanding to connect not only with the story and the experience that's being shared, but also with the implications for this, some of the patterns, but also with a bit more perhaps philosophical rigor in relation to the whole situation. So God knows if that is good enough or full enough as an introduction, I do think it's I do think it's appropriate to try and invite this with a breadth and um, openness to depth, but also justice, I think, as well, to try and open it the conversation in that way. I mean, the intention is very much here to participate in a kind of commons of communication that is that welcomes difference and welcomes either Aubrey or Matthias to join us in dialogue at some point in the future, whether that's practically likely or not, the spirit of invitation and the spirit of address is one that I'm certainly wanting to hold open to that possibility. And yet it does seem important to, you know, question, I think, a little more deeply and bring to presence some of this so there we go. There's plenty more I have to say in terms of positive contention around how I relate to any of this. But as an opening, that's that. Often what we like to do in these dialogues is open the next sharing to the silence. That's open to anyone. And we can take our time. And really just to open this up in the mode of uh, the, the regular sessions we have here to to join in exploration and integration together and to open up to participating in understanding, asking questions and responding to them and seeing where we weave. So that's that. It's lovely to be here with you all. I'll just say for me, one of the things when I first came across Matthias specifically on Aubrey's podcast, I guess it wasn't the first conversation I listened to, it was the second one. And at the beginning, he introduced what he was about to say in terms of like, what I'm about to tell you is not the absolute truth. Like, don't take what I'm telling you as the truth. Like, this is just one frame or one lens to understand reality. And I think there's a way of doing that that has a kind of pretense in it in terms of like, oh, I'm just saying this because I'm supposed to say this, but really I'm going to try to convince you of X, Y, Z. And I didn't get any of that from him. Like, I don't get pretense from him at all. I don't get that whole, I need to convince you of something type of energy. And so that's one of, I could say a lot more, but I think that's one of the things that originally made me want to look a lot more into his backstory and that kind of whole cosmology that you talked about, Tim. Yes. Well, on that, it is quite interesting because there is on the one hand presented I want to say an affect of humility and it's you know it's somewhat challenging to address that too directly when you don't know somebody and all you are receiving is them through a camera obviously 
irony very much being present with us given what we're doing and yet I do invest trust in that process and I don't discount it and I do sense humility there and I do sense care my perception for what it's worth is that there is a considerable amount of confidence in where Matthias is speaking from and that confidence is one that suggests a a really uh, profound conviction about not only the reality of his experiences but the the possibilities for our experience and in some critical sense the conditions of our experience and so the energy I pick up on also includes another side of it which is like you can take it or leave it I don't really care but I'm right I, I, I do pick up that and I rarely see, rarely if ever, find in the context of Aubrey's podcasts when I know that there are plenty of other guests who he has on who have tremendous disagreement about the ontology of the cosmology of Matthias, for instance, the nature of cycles of death and rebirth itself, just to name one. And such differences rarely, if ever, brought to a point, brought into context where it is rested in, where we perhaps, if we speak about ourselves, could rest in together. That precariousness and that uncertainty between, on the one hand, that sense of care and humility, but also the, the seat of authority that is also invoked, from which tremendously broad and critical claims are made about the nature of things, again, that condition our experience and so maybe that's maybe that's enough so on the one hand i i hear that and i also feel that other side of things too is that a fair i'm curious if others feel that as well you know there is a sense there's something of a what is it to interact in a context of good faith in relation i don't want to jump there but in all of this, that's what makes this so tricky as well, because one of the ways that guests will refer to Matthias and one of his great appeals is the effect he has on eliciting a sense of feeling and heart connection in listeners and in others. And there's this sense that we can feel through feeling, we can know things. Now, I agree with that. 
Now, when should the heart, when should a, when should the statements gleaned through feeling and experience come into critical question with other modes of inquiry, other faculties we could name thinking, for instance. And, and here we are wanting to be in relation with all of these, as I know, in fact, Aubrey and Matthias as well want to. But there's something here of, um, like there's something in the very context of the social presencing of this, which makes, which almost calls into question on this very point, the, the possibility for genuine vital contribution, or at least the contribution can be made, but it all of a sudden, uh, it feels the inadequacy of it feels quite poignant straight away. So we have to be open to the interaction and the ongoing dialogue in some critical sense. But what does it take to support that? Then we can kind of ask the question of, is the philosophy, is the embodied philosophy, is the invitational set associated with the kind of content of Aubrey and Matthias in this case, is it actually supportive of the kind of learning and communication that can stay in with that process in a generative sense and not fall into a bypassing of various aspects. Now that's what something where I take that I'm going to slow down for a little bit, but they're just to offer some of the other ways I would open this up a little bit more critically. Now I'll just speak quickly um, because it's not a lot to say, but and I've already said some of this before, but um. I don't, I don't know if it's a gendered reaction, but that video, the one, the, the main one that we're discussing, um, I find very difficult to watch from it. Like it's, to me, it just seems um, like three bros sitting around. Like there's a sense of like a sort of a frothiness and like a, and there's quite an immaturity to it. Like there's lots of like silly laughter and like, I don't know. I don't. I don't get a sense that there's anything like I, it's difficult for me to understand what people are seeing in it. I don't. I don't understand the. So some of what you just said now, Tim, I agree with. There is a um, with Matthias. There is a a confidence and a sort of a calm, like strong center or something, um, which can, which I sort of read as quite convincing. But then at the same time, to me, that's just like a lack of anxiety, um, which can mean a thousand things, doesn't. So, so I, can, I can sort of understand the pull of that. Um, and maybe, maybe him speaking alone is something different. But in that context of those three together, um, I found it really off-putting. And even when I was starting to try and listen to the content, just sort of the manner in which the conversation was unfolding was just felt very performative. It didn't, I didn't, it lacked feeling genuine to me. And, you know, I tried to put that aside and I tried to engage with the content and there were moments where 
I can understand with Matthias, like when you're talking about there's a sense that he really cares. Um, I, I can understand that too. I experienced some of that. But I don't know, beyond that, I'm finding it quite difficult to understand what exactly people are experiencing emotionally when they're connecting to this outside of maybe, you know, like their own wishes and longings for the things that these people are saying to be true, uh, you know. Uh, but but in terms of the the mouthpieces of it, the actual people, like I'm, I'm, I'm sort of struggling to understand what it is that they're how they're bringing that information that is somehow appealing to people's hearts. I, and I don't know. I don't know if it's anything to do with being female or it's just me, but I, that, that's sort of where I'm at. But I'm very open. Like I'm, I am genuinely curious about it and I'm not, I'm not discounting the fact that it might just be my own, my own stuff that's leading to that and nothing to do with you know, anyone else's experience of them. But um, I, I find it quite difficult to watch, to be honest. Uh, there's something in me that's just a bit, uh, I don't know. It's yeah, that would be my emotional experience of watching it. As someone who observes what you've referred to there, some of the footage through many different lenses and the content, uh, I just want to say briefly because there's just too much to say about this in various ways that I really appreciate that appraisal, especially. It's just really important to hear someone like yourself expressing and what you're actually noticing and these different uh, different layers to that and the, the dynamic that you've kind of elucidated, I think, is quite helpful as a frame to sort of move into and discern from there. Yeah, I had a, I had a similar reaction, Aspasia. I think uh, the way you described it was really good. There was, it was kind of frothy, like the the impression i got was that it was like three 12 year old boys writing a comic book you know what i mean it was just sort of like and then the galactic council decided that this happened and oh yeah that's good let's you know let's put that in and it's like no no rigor no like i don't know man like to me to me it was hard because like i mean i'll just be blunt like i don't believe that that guy was actually a part of some galactic council um and so it's like, okay, so where do you go from there, right? Like, I think I think you can still engage with what he's saying and you can still sort of like, you know, there is still sort of a symbolism to it. Um, but the same could be said of like Alex Jones. Yeah, I mean, Alex Jones, like there's a certain coherent symbolism to what he's saying. But at the end of the day, like it's just based on on just like some nonsense. And like, I think what Tim, what you were saying about like he had an air of authority, which is exactly right. It's like, I am the only one who has access to this whole like set of knowledge that none of you, like nobody else can say anything about the Galactic Council, right? He's the only one on earth who is claiming that I know of anyways, who is claiming to have knowledge of this. And he's using this knowledge in order to put forward some sort of philosophy, right? Um, and it's like, okay, like I wasn't there at the Galactic Council, so I can't say anything, but like, where does that leave us? You know what I mean? And uh, yeah, it does like, I, I agree. Like it, it also makes me wonder how people, how other people are listening to this, right? How other people are processing this, specifically people who who have a positive reaction, who follow this guy, and who look to him for some sort of guidance, right? It's like, do they do they have any epistemological hangups with that, or are they just like, do they just like get right past that? I don't know, because to me, that's a giant. 
like that's a giant sticking point, right? As soon as you say I was part of a galactic council, like I'm not taking you seriously anymore. Um, just to be blunt about it, we, you know, we can still talk about symbolism and we can still like, and maybe we'll get into that in this conversation, like, you know, beyond that epistemological hangup, like what was he really saying in terms of like his philosophy, which seemed to me to be kind of a, just a nostalgia for the past is kind of like Rousseauian, like everything was perfect back then. Everyone was in this perfect state of nature and now we've lost it and we need to just like go back to being in resonance with everything, which to me, again, is a very childish uh, way to see the world. Um, so anyways, those are my those are my opening thoughts on the subject. All right. If I can step in then for the sake of facilitating the dialogue itself and it is curious observing myself here because I definitely feel in this session today like I'm playing much more of a role than in other sessions and so I am primarily going to be responding from that role there's a little there's there is me infused in there but I think it's important to bring to attention just how powerful, not that you're not, not that that's being negated here, but I, I think it's important to bring to attention just how powerful and just how influential this type of storytelling and justification is and how tremendously significant that's been throughout the course of human history, cultural history. In some critical sense, the overlap between the storyteller who brings a group of people to recognize and reorient course in life is not so different from also who we think of as prophets, at least at that level of analysis. I'm not saying for a second we shouldn't go deeper into what prophecy means and that we shouldn't um, find here the right fit, seek a right fit for the ontological significance of experiential depth and the nature of the patterns by which, or let's say the nature of coherence that consciousness makes possible, even that is not, not a particularly good way to say that, we can find and use language together that can build bridges of meaning that help situate us with respect to the most profoundly chaotic territory, the most profoundly chaotic experience, when identity as such is all over the place and we can't hold together from one moment to the next. We're of course immersed in a symbolic world and a world of culture that we are fit into and adapted for over so many hundreds and thousands of years at all these levels of 
processing. And it seems as though there are patterns and ways of connoting, referencing, in, 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 you know, resonating the affect of various patterns, which can sort of draw into integration multiple levels of understanding, multiple levels of, one could say, reality from the perspective of the individual that is struggling to connect the dots between the different aspects of their experience. I can be having a real experience over here. The next moment I can be having a real experience over there and I might be quite dissociated as a being in terms of how these experiences connect or what the meaningful connection is between these experiences such that I can have an identity and remain in a kind of continuity with an identity that's at home in that now gestalt, now whole, rather than isolated parts. And so I'll just stop there and just bring some of this in as just some material to furnish us with. It's not a negation of what you're saying, Zach, whatsoever. It's just adding in some some richness as to why it's important to relate to this. And in part to your question, Aspasia, it's really quite clear to me. Like I, I, I get how that communication is settling for people like i i get that i get it to the point where i feel as though well interestingly i feel as though if i wanted to i could learn to perform it now that's a, that's an important point do i think something like what matthias is doing can be performed what aubrey's doing what i'm doing can be performed yes in some sense we need to talk about what is it to perform together what kind of context can support performing together. What do we mean by this is ultimately kind of toward the philosophy of voicecraft. Maybe we won't totally get to it in this conversation, but in terms of a real address here, we're seeking to we're seeking the recognition that there's a lack for me in the in the dialogical context, the epistemic context in the Aubrey Marcus podcast to actually appropriately, in my opinion, address and relate with the energies and the propositions and the authority that's put forward by people like Matthias in a context where there's so many millions who are seeking just that kind of influence, where it may well be that along with the value in sharing story that's valuable for transformation, and there's more than that too, to what degree is there like a profound bypassing of pragmatic, real factors of economic and social and epistemic ontological reality that are being sidelined in favor of that soothing and ultimately that kind of creation of very much passive consumption in relation to in the classic you know body and sense attentionalist message attention list influence um anyway i see you there daniel perhaps you seem like you're ready to share something might be an interesting moment to invite you in 
Well, it's always good to be here with you wonderful people. You know, there's this thinker named um, W. Uh, Clifford, and he talks about epistemic responsibility. And what he means by that is imagine that you knew there was a ship that had uh, holes in it. And someone came along and they asked if they could use your ship. And you said, yeah, go for it. And you go, oh, my gosh, but, you know, there's holes in it. And let's say that, but actually they get to the um, place that they're going and they're perfectly fine. The question is the following. Did you do anything immoral or anything wrong? Mr. Clifford said, yes, because you knew there were holes in the ship. And even though nothing bad happened, it was still epistemically irresponsible. And what he's trying to get at is that there are ethics of thought, irregardless of what's true or false. And that has been very helpful to me um, because, for example, there are very often in religions will be someone that comes along and says, God told me X, right? Or someone comes along and says, this happened to me. And you're, and you're automatically, so on this case with Mr. Matthias, um, there is no possibility of me to know if the man is telling the truth or falsity. And you feel wrong to say he's lying because who are you to say that? But then there's also a feeling of, oh my gosh, if I don't call this guy out, what if he manipulates people? So you're called in dissension because you're like, this could be manipulating people, but also who am I to say that he's not telling the truth, right? There's a lot of crazy stuff out there, you know, and there's also something to be said about we live in a world um, where there is no mythos, there is no story, there is lacking materialism, and this seems to be quite important. Also, it's always possible that 30% of what he's saying is true, 70% is false. Maybe some of it is true and he has bad memories on the rest. Maybe all of it is true. Maybe none of it is true, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's one way you approach this in the question of, is it true or is it false? And then there's another question of what is the epistemically responsible way by which to in engage with material like this? Those are actually different questions. It is actually theoretically possible for something to be true that is epistemically irresponsible to believe. And it is possible for something to be false that is epistemically responsible to believe. This is what's very tricky. You could, so for example, let's say you had a lot of evidence that showed to you that um, John was, uh, I stole $20 from the bank or something. You, you saw the credit card numbers, you saw everything. So you said, well, John stole the money from the bank. And actually it turns out all of that was deep fake. All of that was planted by people. And actually it didn't steal the money. It would actually still be epistemically responsible for you to believe that he stole the money from the bank, even though he did not. This is actually a terrifying realization because what it means is that you can find yourself in what I like to call a conflict of mind, which is where epistemic responsibility comes in conflict with your ability of what is epistemically correspondent, what is true and what is false. And what I think what happens in a case like this is that's what we find ourselves in. And what's interesting to me are in fact the dynamics that arise. Is it responsible to believe? Is it irresponsible to believe? Uh, it's kind of icky where the guys are sitting and it's kind of too male. Well, maybe that's just my own bias and I should be more open to this. And maybe I actually just don't want to believe it because it would demand something of me. How, what is the proper way to hold myself in relation to a conversation like this? Um, now for me, I'll just give you, I'll just give you my take on it. It is epistemically irresponsible for me to believe it, if it even if it is true. It could all be true, but it is actually not epistemically responsible for me to believe it. Um, and that's what I have kind of come to, to be able to treat someone like Matthias, because there's always this, um, you know, the I, thou, and boober, treat someone with love, treat someone with respect. 
But that can also be used to manipulate you, right? Like, hey, you're not respecting me because you're automatically denying what I'm saying. You're not acting in love. But then that means love is expressed in the power dynamic where I have to believe you, right? Well, this is a problem. I saw this all the time, uh, you know, in churches. God told me, Jesus wants you to. And if you don't believe them, then you don't believe in Jesus. Your community rejects you. There are all of these. Uh, what it all comes down to is very often believing something is true is not merely believing something is true. There is an entire sociological dynamic that is at play. There is an entire mental model dynamic that is play. And there are many, many levels of determining if you are going to believe something or not that are not evident or obviously apparent in the question, true or false. Determining if something is true or false actually has a lot of steps before it um, and a lot of emotional steps and sometimes steps that come with great risks. Because the people around you may be upset with you, right? The people around you may um, feel like you're being um, too cynical or not. What if this is all true and we're not open to it, right? So what you find in a question like what to think of Matthias is you find yourself faced with something that you can't simply say, I believe it or I don't, without either position bringing with it a whole lot of potential consequence or weight in the relationships of the people that hear you say you don't believe it or in relationship to the people that hear you say you do believe it. Very similar. It's similar to saying you believe in Jesus or like Jesus was God or that Jesus wasn't God. It's just that culturally and sociologically, those are more accepted metaphysical mythos or mythos. And so you don't tend to have that similar obvious realization of the consequences of this, right? This feels much more pronounced in its um, standing out in lacking sociological regularity or history or something. But it's actually in terms of a truth claim, very similar, right? So what I find, because I actually think a question and then I'll and then I'll close, because you've got a lot of things here like free speech. Okay, should, should people be able to freely share their stories like this if they have a platform that will inherently communicate a certain authority? Well, that goes a lot of the Alex Jones stuff, right? You know, that goes with a lot of the, you know, people going after Rogan. So there's a question of free speech here. There's a question of, are we a people who can handle hearing stories like this and not having it drive us insane and yet simultaneously not being overly cynical in a kind of negative way. Like wh what is our responsibility as subjects in hearing a podcast like this? Because if we pay close enough attention to it, it's much, it's actually a lot more than simply asking, is it true or is it false? It brings with it an entire host of moral questions of the proper way by which to talk about a story like this to other people that is open to the other, but not leaving our friends open to manipulation. Oh, well, that's scary. Ah, yes. But now are you acting in fear to not let your friends listen to a story like this? What if this is all true? Now you're denying your friends the possibility of hearing all this. This kind of podcast brings with it a whole host of questions you have to ask yourself. That's why it's not mere information. Like when you receive information, okay, great, true, false, true, false. Here it exists in that gray space that brings with it all of those questions. I do think um, the distinction between epistemic responsibility and truth is very helpful because otherwise you go into the internet and you hear a lot of stories. Some you need to be exposed to just to widen your horizon and to know that there are different people out there but then you need to have them be able to wash over you in a manner that doesn't necessarily brainwash you, but that you don't also just get out of the water because you don't want to deal with all of the questions, right? Because that's that's kind of the tension. Um, and that, that, I think, brings with it an entire ethic of responsibility and ways of thinking about those. But I think there's a whole lot of these sociological 
questions that that come in play. You know, Tyler had a great comment. I think there's a lot to that that you're talking about. And um, and those are some opening thoughts. Yeah, thank you, Daniel. I feel like it'd be good to play that right at the beginning and just cut out the first like 15 minutes of what I said, because that's that's effectively getting at a lot of what I feel is super important framing. There is part of me that there's a framing of this and then there's the there's the kind of um, going with it in the sense of just putting on a particular frame. In this case, just putting on Matthias's, Aubrey's, the, the mode of seeing that I have a sense that many people have. There is a, on the one hand, you could think of it, Tyler, you mentioned the word in the comments as a kind of credulity. You know, there's, but that itself is a coloring I'm not fully comfortable with. I'm, the world of synchronicity, for instance, is one that's open to me. I'm not close to that. Now, what does that mean? That apparently external phenomena can coincide in their expression with apparently internal phenomena where we cannot specify the causal relation between the two. And in that sense, it is something more like a something more like a kind of again you have to stretch for language which i mean poetically in some sense here as a kind of multi-dimensional unfolding pattern which bears with it and is experienced as a profound kind of connection a causal connecting principle is what Jung calls synchronicity. And that connection experienced, that homing in the cosmic, that homing in the universe, that profound connection between the internal and the external, dwelling in, living on the pulse of the relationship between those two as a homing pattern, there's something about that experience there's something about being open to that mode of knowing and a kind of acceptance. We could talk about it as pattern recognition and overactive pattern recognition. We could use that language too. But there's something in that which there's enough of a black box, even in the world of scientific exploration, in terms of field effects, memory, we could draw on a number of different names here, all of which we have to relate to in some critical sense as well, because we're speaking about that which is pushing the boundaries of our understanding of what we can rely on. And in that sense, as a kind of pre-established 
responsible episteme. And so it be kind of it's obviously important then to distinguish between a kind of um sort of pre-established justification stories like you're mentioning in terms of Jesus and what have you, and to differentiate that from our mode of inquiry itself as a praxis for opening and closing, as exploring and integrating and being open in that sense to be genuinely transformed, to have our perceptions and mode of perception itself transformed, often psychedelics, often trance states, variously motivated transformations of the perceiving structure can make this somewhat apparent, but it seems to me that there's something of a cultivated praxis of relating with the transformations of those modes of perception itself. And that would seem to be critical not to lose here, not because I'm wanting to go from there to defending the propositions of Matthias, but because Matthias is an exemplar actually of so many hundreds, so many thousands of people who similarly share profound capacities for vivid experience, which is in its way revelatory of the kind of patterns, if you want to take a Jungian approach to it, we could say they're the kind of patterns which are the, you know, treasure troves of understanding, grooved into us by virtue of millennia of life and death and experimentation. But depending on how far you want to go back, or at this point, we don't necessarily want to talk just in terms of going back, we want to talk at a level of connections between life and matter, we want to talk in a Whiteheadian way and think about organism as such, physics being the study of the smaller organisms, biology being the study of the larger organisms. Can we open to ways of understanding in which we can recognize profound continuities between our mode of orienting in perception and continuity as such and what makes possible a coherence and connection between things at all. All of a sudden we're reaching here for the kind of metaphysical speculation, language, which is going to feel quite ungrounded and a million miles away in some critical sense from an endorsement of the justification system put forward by Matthias, but at the same time, that seems to be there's something in the mode of well i'm just going to i'm just going to recapitulate and so maybe there's already enough there i know that we can take this in a few few ways cam i think quite a few things that i spoke to there are things which i know you'd be interested to take in a few directions so i'm going to ask you to resist the impulse to say nothing simply because there's so much to say, just for the fun of it. Oh, thank you. appreciate the opening there. You know, when I was listening earlier on, 
the word epistemic hedonism came to mind. But then when I read Tyler's comment, looking at some of these uh, developmental intrapsychic dynamics, uh, Peter Pan epistemology came to mind. Um, and I do appreciate that the perspective on that kind of brosy and that kind of childlike play with mythos there. Um, and the reality is a lot of us do need more mythos in our life. You know, things are so orderly and uh, quite destructively so often with the constraining factors, sociologically speaking, that we've all been subject to over whatever period of time you like to refer to. And so, you know, I've got a lot of empathy at least for these these archetypes manifesting and this energizing and somewhat transformative way and i'm also someone that has over the last 20 years experienced things that are in terms of consciousness expansion and uh transformation that are fairly impossible within the domain of a standard deviation uh, either side of the bell curve of normal personality structure and composition of information into frames. Um, I'm aware that, well, there's a lot that's possible and I'm not sure there's any boundary on what is possible as relates to potentiality, but how we relate to that and frame that and the whole interpersonal dynamics associated with that are so many layers and there's so much discipline, at least in my experience, that must be applied carefully to the way in which we relate to, um, you know, a diversity of archetypal hyperbole, right? Um, there's so much that can happen. And I think the the conversation recently between John Viviaki and Jordan Peterson really tackled some of the themes of critical significance here when it comes to uh, the skew from mythos to logos or how they balance together uh, self-deception. And if you really think you've got a handle on it, maybe you're falling prey to uh, one of the key aspects of self-deception. De um, and uh, a number of other themes i think when it comes to uh just that whole discerning process and uh yeah so there's a lot there altogether and i'm aware that some of the themes that mateus comments on there's some overlapping with what i've been exposed to in australian shamanic religious uh theology all that kind of thing um but again, I'm, I'm so aware of the discipline involved in actually doing the hard work to discern in this context. So when I come across people who don't seem to have in their personality structure a real dedication to that discipline of integrating mind and the coordination of their relationship with information and expression of that and the ethics that um, Daniel was able to articulate earlier, which is quite intricate and with a lot of consideration and dialogue goes around, um, it does get me very focused on the dynamic. And I've been very focused on the way people respond to the energy of those conversations with Matias. And I have sort of picked up on a kind of bypassing energy that just almost like a being drawn into that. And um, without the necessary discern discernment required to hold boundaries and uh, prevent the bypassing of one's own inner confrontation, perhaps. So I think lastly, what I'll say is that because I am interested in these archetypal themes, and I think it's really important to have that mythos 
but in balance with the logos and just uh, maintaining our capacity to discern because maybe the stakes are quite high when it comes to how communities are built around themes and the way we uh, interact with each other and the, the, the implicit power dynamics involved in that. If, if I were to, I think, um, insert myself in Matea's mind, obviously that's impossible. And Wittgenstein's beetle-in-the-box argument also can play a, a role in this when it comes to how do I know this person's referring to the same thing I'm referring to, all these kind of you know epistemic complexities and communication complexities and linguistic aspects come into this. But so the way I communicate, considering the discipline involved in having extraordinary experiences, archetypal themes relating to them, and um, that opening and that expansion and wanting to kind of imbue that possibility in others is, well, you, you spend a whole lifetime really developing a discipline around your choice of words and the way you frame all of this. For a start, you don't get lost in the inflation. You understand that that is a relationship that everyone can potentially have to some degree, functional limitations considered with information as such. And everyone has different capacities and different modes they perhaps perform best in. So there's a lot to that. Um, but I would communicate, this is the experience. This was the process. Uh, this is what I'm aware of. These are the images. These are the archetypes I'm aware of or that under the circumstance, hide the experience of, and these are the connections I'm making. These are the historical time periods that might be a meaningful way to describe that in the context of the literature, whether it's Plato's Republic with Atlantis being mentioned. You know, maybe we can insert the collective unconscious and uh, an information field that uh, resonates at a, at a level of consciousness that for most people is not apprehensible without psychedelics or another consciousness transform transforming um, catalyst of some kind. And then just relate to the complexity of interpreting something that the brain cannot necessarily hold beyond these uh, archetypal manifestations that are embodied in some sense. So there's quite a lot of epistemic uh, complexity and embodied complexity to that. But I just find speaking to what was experienced and the context uh, um, and creating a bit of space between that and one's persona perhaps could be a, a helpful way of communicating if one were to be an ideal kind of Matias and not uh, take various risks, whether they're ethical or epistemic, and yet instill some inspiration in people, as I hope, hope everyone here and hope they are really hoping to with, with Aubrey set up there. So there's a direction that I would like to see if it's possible to move in because there are, there are a few sort of threads and themes for the forthcoming several weeks of conversation. I've intimated a few in the network already and I'm hoping to bring them up with a few of the upcoming podcast guests as well. But before I do, I, I don't want to like move things too drastically. I kind of just want to open to see there's one or two people we haven't heard from or haven't heard from in a while. So I want to leave a bit of space maybe to just offer some reflection if you have any by way of what you've heard. And if, you've, if you're feeling particularly, I'm really curious about if there are Maybe they're not dim, but maybe they're sort of dim nubs of 
truth or ah this hasn't this isn't quite being spoken to i feel this should be this should be part of this should be part of it and that can be a profound disagreement it can also be something that's been overlooked one way or the other and so i like to just open a little bit for that yeah i feel like maybe one thing we haven't quite addressed is we've sort of i feel like we've done justice to that realm we might have referred to it as mythos or continuity or potentiality but i feel like we did that by invoking an excess of logos and so maybe the question going forward is what would an interface language look like for humanity because i think what matthias has done is he's encoded extraordinary levels of complexity into a language that resonates with enough of someone's intelligences that it quite reliably creates shifts in well-being and those sorts of things and so how does that language change once it's undergone the rigor of philosophy and more logical structures and what gets tricky with that is it's very easy to make those stories more rigorous but the risk of losing the vitality or the connection to the imaginal or all these sort of vital things i think it's just it's really tricky so i'd love to hear anyone's thoughts on that like how will we be speaking how will we be responding to the complexity and connecting to meaning significance if not through that language and maybe it's just an iteration on that language yeah maybe maybe i could respond to that and uh first of all i want to i want to say that like i i'm totally on board with the idea that we need mythos we need access to the imaginal layer of reality um and this this reminds me of something that my dad said to me once so my dad is an orthodox jew right but hasn't been his whole life he lived most of his life as a totally secular guy um scientifically minded became religious later in life when i was a teenager and i can remember having this conversation with him where i was like do you believe that the stories in the torah actually happened as like historical fact um and he said what he said was really interesting he said that when I engage with the stories in the Torah, I don't do so from the frame of mind of a rational historical person. I engage, he says, the word he used was la la land. He says, when I engage with those stories, I go to la la land. And in la la land, anything is possible and anything could happen. And it, it gives me it access to this sort of childlike imagination that I, that I don't otherwise have access to. Um, but when I'm walking down the street and I'm, I, you know, when I'm dealing with scientific questions, I engage with, I, I'm not doing that from La La Land. I'm doing that from the point of view of a rational scientific person, right? Um, and so he kind of creates this split in his psyche, which I thought was really a, an interesting answer to that question, right? Um, and first of all, I'm not, I'm not sure that Matthias has made that split. I'm not sure that he's you know, I'm not sure that he differentiates between like when he's in la-la land and when he's in rational scientific mode. Um, but leaving that aside, there is also the fact that like 
when my dad as a Jew goes into La La Land, his his realm of experience is still bounded by the Torah, by the tradition, by all the other people in his community, right? And so it's not it's not just anything goes. Like he's still engaging with a specific narrative within a specific structure. There is still rigor to it, even if it's not a scientific rigor, right? Even if it's not a rigor in terms of like, does this correspond to a scientific interpretation of reality? It is still rigorous in terms of its its boundedness within a tradition, within a community, within like there's, you know, there's still checks on what on what a person can experience within that that realm, right? And Matthias doesn't have any of that. There's nobody yet like he's not going to the world of biblical mythology or Greek mythology or, you know what I mean? Like even the Oracle of Delphi could could talk to the gods and all this, but they were the Greek gods. You know what I mean? They were like a specific set of archetypes within a specific narrative set that people were familiar with, right? And even if Daniel's cult leader said, I talked to Jesus, the other people in that community still know who Jesus was. And that's still grounded within some sort of rigorous structure and Matthias's mythology is not it is purely a construct of his own imagination disconnected from all community from all history from everything there is no connection to anything else in the world other than his own imaginings um and so that's what I mean when there's no rigor in it I'm not I'm not like I don't care if it I'm not I'm not being scientific here, you know. I'm not trying to be like a rationalist. I'm totally cool with going to the imaginal space. I'm just saying that that imaginal space needs to have some sort of definition and some sort of connection to other people and to history and to community. Yeah, I, I feel like maybe we need to be careful of our collective shadow in that I think whenever you're like sort of grappling with these archetypal domains there is a tendency to speak from one of them at the other and i feel like we've done a good job of giving each their due but it still feels to me like maybe one of the stronger flavors in this conversation has been the logos sort of speaking onto the mythos and i still don't think it resolves the question of like how do we take the new age seriously because maybe matthias himself isn't super embedded but i think the new age is and if you look around the world right now there is a narrative structure emerging through people and there's like a high level of coherence and correspondence there and just to be clear i'm the first person to sort of challenge that and be very careful with it but i think what would be the meaningful work for us is like what does it look like for that story to undergo a transformation where it is taken to task on its metaphysical rigor. Cause I think that language is here to stay. I don't see it going away. It's too big. It's taken up the psyches of too many people. And I think because of that, it is in a sense contained. And so I'm, I'm wondering like, how do we play with it and take it in good faith as well? And just to add one point building on that, just to offer a piece of, all right, sociological, anthropological reality, at least in the context of Australia, I can like report from the field that those who are who see themselves as, you know, the shamans enabling profound DMT experiences, five MEO otherwise, 
what you will hear, and it's spoken of in relatively public settings. You have to journey into the bush to go to those public settings. But what you will hear is something like a lecture, a statement of just so fact that there are X and Y dimensions. And it ain't always nine, it's 12, it's 14. You know, not saying there's a consistency to it, but just to build on Tom's point, um, the, and this was partly why I've had some of the conversations I've had and why I'm interested in this topic. It's not the only reason, but just from, I'm not only interested in it from an anthropological reason, but I am very interested in it for an anthropological reason in terms of culture making and relating in the context of culture as such, because these, to, to my to my perception, those seeking connection between their spiritual, from their spiritual experience to their religious impulse to gather and commune in relation to that shared experience there are many established pathways. There are many grooves that through narrative, through energy, through capital, through business model, like I don't want to lose that. That's partly what I want to bring in another part that are reliably capturing people. We can use that word. Capturing is, is a word that brings in a lot of, again, kind of to OG's point and what I was trying to specify out with earlier, it's quite a thing to accuse someone of lying, but you know, when you can't participate in the same justification process that can make that possible or not, if you can't know for sure, then then you know, you're somewhat in between a rock and a hard place. And there are there's attentional capture, there's spiritual. I mean, just look at Alex Jones as an example of. And the whole QAnon phenomena, there's a tremendous amount of seeking energy that is reliably captured within, I think, we, I think we can say a kind of toxic mythos, you know, but it depends how far you step back, really, and uh, you know, but it's because it kind of, kind of the question is, in some sense, to what, like, at what level of scale are you hoping to build or participate in the building of genuinely wiser pathways, of genuinely more nuanced pathways, maybe that's just ridiculous because actually what is going to happen is the bloody plow or whatever is just going to bash its way through the mountain or the water's just going to, you know what I mean? There's that much pressure that it's not going to be nuanced. It's just going to cataclysmically reform the territory and so there are genuine questions as to uh, practical power in some sense. And, you know, <laughs> polit the politics of education, you know, isn't that interesting? You know, obviously the whole, just a, a, a really kind of silly example, just to close, it's like, you know, talk about dictators in poor countries where the money is gained through one resource, they don't have much of an incentive to build infrastructure anywhere in the country other than the infrastructure necessary to extract that resource and ship it off because that's their main source of income. And the more infrastructure, the more education the population has, the more that might destabilize their regime 
this is like core like game theory type type thing you'll hear spoken of and um you know so there's something of that you know there's something of uh religion as the opium of the masses not saying that's what it is but saying in terms of how that functions in the context of cultural forces is kind of an interesting point as well so a few things come to mind um there's a story in the gospel where jesus says if you remove a demon and don't put something in its place seven more come and make your situation a lot worse um we have to remember that one of the reasons um, liberalism, science, the enlightenment occurred was because of all the religious wars. And you had all these people in their religions and they were fighting and all these different things. And the hope was, okay, well, if we can create a kind of rational, enlightened society based on facts, we won't have that problem anymore. And it kind of worked. The problem is that it works by removing mythos. And it's precisely the kind of hard, empiricist, rational mindset that then leads you to the meaning crisis. We never actually dealt with the problem of mythos. We actually avoided it through the scientific sort of enlightenment movement. Now, that brought with it a lot of technology, a lot of goods. I'm not saying this was a mistake. You know, with that bit of Hegel, it's always the movement of each episode has to be sublated into the next. But we always have to remember that scientism, enlightenment, the things that the stress on logos that contributed to nihilism or the meaning crisis or God is dead was all done from a kind of, well, guys, if you're going to play with that fire, you're all going to get burned. And that's exactly what you see here. People are going back to mythos because living without it is not an option. And in fact, the hard enlightenment dream gave us what? The world wars. It gave us the vision of totality, um, mass globalization, like logos, autonomous logos without mythos tends to lead to totalization and all sorts of trouble. So you can't do that. Likewise, you can't do mythos without logos. But what does it look like? And then, of course, Eros as well. What does it look like to bring back mythos and not end up in the problems that historically were so dire? Um. We're talking some sort of skill set. We're talking some sort of skill set that has not existed in history. And I think that Mr. Mr. Highboot was getting at a lot. You know, there's another lovely book I should reference. Uh, Mr. Uh, Jonathan Routes wrote an incredible book called Kindly Inquisitors, which was based on the problem of how do you tell the difference between knowledge and belief? It, because everything Mat Matisse is saying, what Mr. Routes would say, because of the process of free speech, he's defending free speech, but bringing it together actually with the epistemological falsification of Karl Popper to say that you can believe the world is flat all you want, but if you want to teach it in the classroom, it, it is going to have to pass a certain test so that it can be constituted as knowledge. So, so the key is just because something isn't knowledge doesn't mean it's false, but if you want it to be seen as knowledge, there's a certain test that it has to pass. Not because that makes it more true, but because we have to socially organize in a manner to determine what will be taught in school, what will not. It's very similar to this distinction between ep with epistemic responsibility. You need some sort of way to determine um, how it is possible for you to relate to something without believing it, and yet you're not saying it's false. Well, you're saying it's epistemically irresponsible for me to believe given the conditions. Uh, likewise, what Mr. Routes would say, there are many things that may be true that because they cannot be 
portrayed in terms of knowledge only belief, it would actually be epistemically irresponsible for you to believe in them because they don't pass certain tests. So what he's trying to say is that the reason you need free speech is so you can have a society of people that would seriously consider Matthias, like seriously have these podcasts. You seriously need all these people putting forth all of these different stories and mythos because without that, we have no way to have a conversation to determine what is knowledge, what is belief. In fact, some power source will have to decide it for us, and that's called censorship. Okay, well, then what Mitzerout is saying is that we need to have free speech. Let Matthias speak. Let the um, Pentecostals speak. Let all of these religious speak. But here's the kicker. If you're going to do that, then the people hearing the free speech, hearing the stories, must have some ability to handle it. And the, the myth I think about is basically what we see today is the story of the labyrinth. It's the, min the Minotaur. Oh, you want, so, you know, the, the Enlightenment came along and said, don't go in that maze. Science can keep you out from having to go in that maze, actually. Just stay out of it. Because once you go in, you could get lost. In fact, you probably will get lost. And then the Minotaur will kill you. So for a very long time, we didn't go into the maze. And that led to totalization, nihilism, meaning crisis, world wars. So we have to go into this maze or else someone has to censor certain things, restrict free speech, et cetera, so forth. Okay, how do you get through the maze? A golden thread. There is some golden thread that has to be found today so that we can go through the internet without someone censoring it, without getting caught up in things, hearing different mythos, re-engaging with metaphysics, metaphysics and all of these different stories without being driven crazy. Basically, like um, Odysseus, and it's all a Tom and Pitches, a Thomas Pitchin novel at this point, with crying to block forty nine. Um, to start bringing this to a close, you know, the internet is very similar to like a dream space, maybe a psychedelic space, in the sense of you don't know what's going to arise, and it's like, oh, you wanted to come here, like you have that little archetypical voice. Oh, you wanted to go into the psyche. Oh, you wanted to come into the internet. Oh, you wanted to come into the dream space. You know there's a minotaur in here, right? And you know this is a very difficult maze to navigate. There's this collective sense that we have to go into these various mazes, but we have not yet collectively come to understand what would constitute the thread by which we can start to navigate through them without getting lost in conspiracies, because basically conspiracies have the same structure as being an internally consistent system that you cannot falsify, that once you enter, you see plausible reason to stay in it, and then you cannot escape just like a religion, just like a metaphysic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what is the golden thread? Has something to do, so a few things and I'll pass it on. Um, it has a few things. It has something to do with community. For me, the blend between metaphysics and empiricism is uh, phenomenology. Phenomenology is a lot what this has to get into. The ability to see a thing that then becomes the concrete binding, just like the community that Zach was saying, but it is not reducible to just the facticity of the phenomenon. So what you have to start talking about, what are the skills of really seeing? phenomenologically, meaning, you know, uh, Hans Ruckmacher said that reality was meaning plus fact. We've gotten really good at the fact. There is a period before the enlightenment where we were really good at the meaning. Both of them miss reality. Now we're trying to deal with reality. Well, that's meaning plus fact. How in the world do you do that? There's some sort of skill. He brought that together with the, the ability of the artist, the ability of Suzanne to really see. It has something to do with voice craft, the ability to really experience the voice, not just in terms of information, but as some sort of depth 
that becomes a kind of thread to guide us through. And the questions we have to ask, this would also be a little test for Matthias. For, is Matthias telling you something that you have to go do? Or is Matthias telling you something that you can do right now to change how you see your current condition? This is part of the test. If the person you are li listening to is saying that you need to now go participate, say, in a different uh, sexual practice or a different uh, retreat practice or a different work, these are things of distance. Go do and then you'll have. This is what we must be skeptical of. But if Matthias is saying, actually, come to terms with your emotion and you'll have a certain depth now that will change how you experience currently, ah, well, this is bound because it's bound to my immediate experience now. So pay attention online between what someone is telling you as a mythos of distance, leave behind, change, pay, go, and a mythos of depth that is going to be more akin to something phenomenological because now we have a binding principle, but it is not the same as a reductionistic, reductionistic principle. And so for me, something like that is where we're starting to talk about how to bring together mythos and logos. And I would also say it brings in arrows because phenomenology is the skills of beauty. You can see things as beautiful. Beautiful is what brings a kindle the arrows. It brings together the emotional and the life. Hearing the voice in a certain fashion has this ability to kindle arrows, has something to kindle the ability to work through these mazes with a certain thread. But this is what we have to locate. And this is our challenge now that the scientists for a long time said, are you sure you want to go into that maze? Because there's a minotaur. We didn't. We paid a high price. We're going into that maze, but we need to capture and hold on to that thread. And I think it has something to do with things like phenomenology. Yeah, that was brilliant, Daniel. Thank you. You know, interestingly, that kind of, for me, raises an impulse to speak about pragmatic things, pragmatic questions. We've been with a number of those before in different sessions. So I'm kind of, I want to resist that a little bit just for the sake of maybe calling in some things which are still maybe relevant to it is very de very deeply relevant to the topic at hand and i want to remain in contact in some sense in the very way you just suggested with what that brings forth from me but i also want to be responsive to this as an artifact and sort of recognizing that we would need i think another session to delve back into that pragmatic component because we do, why am I saying that? Because there's a critical point you're making there about inviting depth to presence, welcoming depth, being responsive to relationship, holding to the integrity of that invitation to be with depth. But if we're talking about such things as culture and education and invitation in a broader sense, then in that there is also a kind of advocacy, a proposal to do something at a larger scale that perhaps we cannot entirely realize now together. We can be in a certain kind of resonance with it and we can, you know, remain with it in a envisioning process and maybe some e exemplifying way but 
it seems to me that you know we we will encounter questions of if we're talking about such scale because that's part of this conversation and this is the link I want to make back to we're partly having this conversation we're interested in the content in and of itself we would have if we were in to have this conversation about this content for the sake of that alone we would have framed it in a different way not through speaking about Aubrey and Matthias we could have spoken about the relation between myth and logos indeed i'm sure we will you know um again and again part of the theme that i'd like to draw in is the i haven't used this uh, phrase before really but the kind of the 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 potential for a kind of crypto elitism of the philosophy associated with Aubrey and Matthias and I think in Aubrey's sense somewhat unwittingly I would say it seems like it it almost must be un unwitting to some critical degree part of the narrative that seems like it's affirmed in dialogue between them as part of essentially affirming the legitimacy of a figure like Matthias at all is the activities he engages in around the world to do with something to the effect of and again what is communicated by this is a separate question sort of but something like opening portals around the world in resonant spots in service of future civilizations and potentially other dimensions other civilizations i am not able to recount i'm not claiming to recount with legitimacy his particular framings of his let's say the quasi logos of his mythos but there are in these you can go and join Matthias you can pay a bunch of money to join some several hundred you can go to the pyramids you can go to different to be honest it would probably be a lot of fun and to be honest with you i'm very very i'm deeply curious and i don't want to carry forth uh, carry through a kind of uh speaking down skepticism at all nothing holier than thou about the openness i have for the energetics of the earth for the whole domain of field effects and memory and the meaning of song lines how consciousness how information is stored in land in fields there's like there's a genuinely very interesting domain of inquiry here and it's not for me to say what's interesting or not but like th th there's i don't want to so i want to be careful about that but the point is in this kind of the 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 crypto elitist philosophical component is like well what are you going to do with millions of people listening to you you know what are you going to do with that it seems like there is no clue actually what to do with that there's so many podcasts that obviously have this you kind of there hasn't been thought at all but the 
the pragmatism, the pragmatics of the power relations, let's just say it opens up a very, very big kettle of fish. And in the case of Aubrey and what have you, it's like, well, it's helpful to have access to justifying narrative to why, whether this synchronicity of eclipse happening over Austin in combination with you know the opportunity to get together and undergo some kind of ritual in service of a future civilization that is mediated through all of this mythos that then gets beamed out to support the attentional empire in some sense the attentional dynamic all the money comes through that capacity for the the marketing the signaling like that the the sense of oh this is somewhere to be is partly because lots of eyes are on it there's more than that it's, it's many many things and i don't want to be too critical but it's helpful to have narratives that and experiences which can then be narrativized to justify why think why tragic things are happening in the world and maybe why this level of asymmetry of power is again justifiable like what i'm very interested in the psychology of what happens at such disproportionate levels of means and attention and the pull of this is what i mean by the crypto elixir i'm not accusing of like i'm just trying to say what kinds of philosophies what kinds of interpretations and, and and myths are likely to perpetuate the belief that this chosen group of people who either can afford to or are willing to swallow the kool-aid of our particular mythos get to be part of the chosen exodus doing god's work while the rest of the people are what you know we can reach them and try to connect to them somehow and you know, maybe support them with these stories and invite them and soothe them in some sense, kind of like soothing for you, um, unrigorous justification of elitist mythos for us. That's like the, that's like a real cynical, a real cynical perspective on, you know, to share. But I, I am curious about that. I think we see this type of thing happen a lot and I think psychologically people need to, if they fear, hey, it's all going to shit, the world's collapsing, we don't know what we can do about it, how can we justify ourselves having the opportunity to do this and that while others don't? That's just going to become more and more, that is becoming more and more necessary as the world increasingly gets where liberty in the world is increasingly afforded through disproportionate means and where sort of censorship and authority kind of begins to presence itself a little bit more for the majority of people. So that's kind of something that I, I wanted to bring in here, partly because this will be an ongoing thread of exploration over the next sort of several weeks. It feels um, very interesting to think about in terms of myths of exodus, as well as something that seeks to be more universal in its 
treatment of the dignity of people. I think this this orientation to otherize and to differentiate based on mythos is obviously extremely powerful and is going to come into play more and more in conditions of scarcity. One could make that hypothesis, certainly. So yeah, I'm I'm curious, Tom. Um, see you later, Cam. I'm curious, Tom, if um, I'm curious whether or not we've managed at all to speak a little bit to do the mythos somehow a little bit more justice to speak from the mythos in some sense. I mean, it's difficult to do when it seems like the the actual space, like the relational proximity, like the relational presence, it seems like it's necessary to feel into that and cultivate a relation with that to sort of animate from the inside out a kind of mythic orientation or shared mythos to kind of, rather than to impose it, to feel it come through in a space in that sense to follow the signs and that's partly why i've was in the opening i'm trying to be really open to a relational address with someone like aubrey and i actually also feel like potentially in the last like 15 minutes of what i shared could be a lot more insulting you know as risks it risks being something like that maybe not i mean who would care but there's such a distance, there's such an ace, there's such a distance, and there's such an asymmetry in some sense that main that holding open a continuity of participation and address in the context of such asymmetry, that's partly what's in question here. I think um, what and 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 there's pulls on justifying mythos and you know there's there's pulls on how we wish to use mythos to justify the little bubble of relationality that we're able to touch and access like we're we're partly conditioned by that landscape in some sense is what i'm trying to trying to say and it's um to what degree are we in fact living in a culture that is you know capable of entering into dialogue with itself you know it seems like kind of not really but also maybe yes i don't know like it seems like sort of schizophrenic and fractured but also in principle there's a possibility for connection but it's so easy for people to tune out why be interested in this it's so much work we're all picking up different resonances what speaks to our hearts what addresses our hearts well you know this conversation isn't going to be helpful in a significant way if it you know jams out the heart of someone who might hold a different opinion and maybe they could come into some mode of participatory understanding and learn you know and maybe change their perspective or grow you know evolve their perspective but you know that dignity has to be afforded in some critical sense and Anyway, I'll stop there. So it, it is it is it is a major conundrum.
So perhaps then we'll just say here might be a good place to bring it to a close and thank you all. I, I do care about these things at a sociological scale. I find it far more interesting at that layer. Uh, psychologically, I can play a lot of games trying to understand why people believe anything. Who knows? Um, that's fun for me too. But we live in an era of uh, that's dominated by the media landscape. I mean, we, we live in the, uh, the era of being massaged continuously by media. So the manner in which we accept beliefs, the manner in which we become accustomed to accepting beliefs is far more interesting to me because we are adaptable. I think we are in the realm of Girard. I think we're in the in Baudrillard. Maybe it's an, we're in the realm of Ards. Uh, it's, it's the Frenchman's philosophical uh, heyday, perhaps. I don't, I, it, it, maybe that's just what it is, right? We're in the era of it's post-revolutionary, post-bloody reign of terror, post has uh, is, is, is it are we living in a french nightmare is that what's going on otherwise yeah i used to play these games just like matthias when i was a kid all the time right i made elaborate elaborate worlds i think he has fabricated himself even uh, a language um which is impressive that's a lot of work i i applaud him truly like like really like it is a lot of work to do all this and it represents an extraordinary capacity that is necessary. We do need it to produce, to carry, to give vivid, lifelike reality to our mythos. But it must be a real mythos, okay? It must be a real mythos. So that's, that's my contention. If it is not, within, then we are being led astray. It doesn't matter how beautiful it is or captivating. It is a Venus flytrap. Okay, so there, there are my thoughts. Um, Really excellent, really excellent thoughts from a lot of you, like truly. And Tom, I don't, you're trying to defend him, man. I don't mean to attack uh, too too harshly, but yeah, I, I'm willing to explore all sorts of the undercurrents of this stuff because I think it is legitimate. <laughs>